All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing Mark Thornton, senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute, the Mises Institute, Mises.org. And his latest book is The Skyscraper Curse. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing great, and it's great to be back with you. Uh, so much has happened uh, since we last talked, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, the world is a very interesting place, um, way too interesting than it should be, uh, because government, I think, has just gone crazy in every possible direction. It sure does seem like that. All right, now, before we dig too far into this, I want to start with the thing I think I try to always remember to say Whenever I interview one of you brilliant Austrian school guys about the boom-bust cycle is I say something like this. I say, hey, listen, you don't have to be a libertarian. Anyone listen to this show who's like a, just a foreign policy person, maybe you don't like libertarianism or whatever thing. You have to agree with us about any other thing in the world at all. You could be totally for the welfare state and the regulatory state and the, even the warfare state, I guess, if you're horrible. But you still, it's just true. The Austrians are the ones who understand why there's the boom-bust economy every 10 years the way that it is. And it just ruins everything. And it's, it's, I think, the number one reason, even if people don't articulate this way, it's the number one reason why people think that capitalism is just a nightmare and that maybe we should be commies or some other kind of thing because who would organize their society like this? And there's homeless people everywhere. It's just, it's a wreck. And nobody's confused about whether it's a wreck or not. But I'm here to tell you, and Mark Thornton's here to tell you about, uh, to clear up, really, uh, the confusion about why it is that the economy booms and busts like this. And frankly, speaking as a person who's never had very much money, when it booms, never even really feels like a boom to me. I mean, maybe I can get a job rather than not be able to get a job. Um, but usually it just means there are rising prices. But not rising prices and things that I'm owning and selling and making capital gains from or anything like that. And I think yeah. a lot of times when it's the boom, regular people don't even think of it as a boom. They, don't, they might not even feel um, the good part of it at all. But boy, we all sure feel the, well, many of us feel the crash when it comes. So what is the key uh, Mark, now that I set you up as the holder of the key, what is it that people need to understand about why it is the way it is? Well, Scott, you put it extremely well um, about the boom-bust cycle and its many, many manifestations, and particularly, you know, how it 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 doesn't really help the average Joe out there. Um, in the economy, and it, it really does help the people at the very top. But when you look for the magic ingredient to all of these problems, it's paper money. I mean, paper money for government politicians and, and uh, bureaucrats is, is a great thing. They never have to take a budget cut 
there's always more money next year. And if not, we can just borrow because we can always pay it back uh, because it's paper money. And, you know, it's paper money that allows the Fed to set any old interest rate uh, it wants. And that's really the mechanism of the boom bust cycle that if they, you know, if they want to flood the market uh, and lower the interest rate um, and make credit widely available, typically to, you know, big corporations um, and the government itself, well, it's just paper money. They don't have to, they don't actually have to make a sacrifice. And so, you know, by forcing more and more paper money in the economy, they create a temporary boom with investment. Uh, but now we're seeing the cost of that as high prices in the stock market are now translating down to Main Street with high prices. Uh, at the grocery store and in all other stores, really, you know, it's amazing to me, um, you know, you go to stores um, and the shelves are not properly stocked. Things are on back order. Prices are, are re- much, much higher than the last time I went into the store. Um, and so it's all filtering down, coming home to roost. Uh, with 8% official inflation. And ultimately, and and Scott, I hope you talk about this every week, uh, or at least mention it, is that the paper money system, I'll try to put this as, as simply as possible, the paper money system allows politicians to go to war without having to bring the taxpayer the bill directly. So, you know, when we go spend $40 billion in the Ukraine or, you know, a half a trillion dollars in Vietnam, it's not like at a restaurant where the waiter brings you a bill. Um, you know, the American taxpayers didn't have to decide as taxpayers on th- this type of giveaway uh, legislation because they were going to rely on debt and then the Federal Reserve financing that initial uh, that increase in national debt with paper money. So it allows them to pay for unnecessary wars. Uh, the taxpayer and the voter don't find out about it until uh, it's way too late. Uh, for the political process to reverse course. You know, what are the chances of somehow or another that the U.S. decides, well, we're not really going to give that money uh, or those weapons uh, to the Ukrainians? Well, that's water under the bridge uh, right now. So even war and, you know, some great minds, much smarter than my own, have thought that the reason the 20th century was the century of war and millions of people dying um, throughout that period uh, across the globe was the, because that was the century in which the whole world switched over uh, to central banking and then to paper money. 
So it's it, it, it affects, excuse me, it infects um, our lives from top to bottom. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I had a lot of fun on the Kennedy Nation show a few weeks back where I got to say, I forgot exactly the setup, but something like, that's why we need a gold standard so that we can't have these imperial wars anymore. And then, you know, I can't even see Kennedy, much less the other panelists. I'm just looking into the camera when I'm on there. But then I watched the replay <laughs> later, and the Democrat lady's face is just twisted in knots. Like, the right winger's like, oh, yeah, because he's a little bit of an America first guy. So he's like, hey, that makes sense. I could see the consistency there. It kind of appealed to him. But the Democrat lady's like, what? He's for a gold standard, so we can't have wars anymore. And just, yeah. Hey, you read the Nash Review? I think it was even Milton Friedman said, well, that's why we can't have a gold standard. What if we want to have a war? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's exactly my point. But from the other point of view is all. Um, but now, yeah, so, and congratulations for that appearance on Kennedy. That was uh, widely and positively noted. Oh, really? By many people, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, no, anytime. Oh, because what it was was she gave me a chance to talk about, oh, well, where would somebody learn about these Austrian uh, economics? And I said, listen, I have my own little old libertarian institute. Well, you got to go to Mises. These are the guys who know, of course, because you guys are my heroes. So, um, so yeah, that was great. So I'm glad you guys got to pass that around. I meant every word of that. Uh, and I say any chance I get, and which is why I got you on here. And I, I just I trade off. You know, sometimes I interview Bob or whoever. I don't really know Mark Salerno, but um, anyway, uh, you guys right? I, and talk with you know Jeff Dice and Tom Woods, and of course you know all of my guys. But so now this whole boom bust thing. Uh, obviously printing money is easier than raising taxes for a war and all that. But if I'm brand new at this, explain to me how this causes the artificial boom. And then tell me what causes the very real bust. Cause we all feel that. Well, I mean, you know, uh, we were talking about that at lunch today. Um, you know, it wasn't just, um, not even a year ago when mortgage rates were at all-time lows. And, uh, you know, I looked at the chart, and the chart goes back into the 50s, and mortgages were never that low at 3% for 30-year fixed mortgage. Give me a break. But that's the way things were for a very long time in the U.S. economy, where home buyers could borrow at 3%, which is basically back then it was just the inflation rate. So everybody was borrowing. And of course, the same thing affects corporations and their investment plans and you know how many new drugs they're going to develop or how many new computer chips or video games or whatever. Um, it was a lot of it was a lot easier to sink money into those kind of projects. And into all of these companies, um, all the new streaming services that came on. I mean, CNN pulled their plug on their streaming service last month. I wrote about that on Mises.org. But, you know, there was six, seven, eight uh, brand new streaming services launched um, in a very short period of time. You know, corporations didn't think anything of it. Um, they plan to spend billions of dollars rolling those things out because, well, just because money was so easily available, it was so cheap uh, for them. And, 
you know, and, and so that created an investment boom really um, in technology and, uh, you know, in streaming services and in housing, um, you know, and so the housing market became red hot and the supply of homes for sale was at record lows. Um, and the ones that did come onto the market were snapped up in a matter of hours, uh, usually priced out at um, above what the asking price was. So you don't have to go back too further in time to get into that boom phase um, where interest rates were mightily low and banks and credit institutions were, you know, granting uh large loans um, to corporations and, and real estate developers um, and all the rest and new companies as well, brand new companies. And, uh, and so you get the, you know, it's a, uh, it's a temporary uh, effect of, of injecting all of this new cash and capital uh, into the market, but it definitely creates a boom phase where, Everybody can get a job and everybody's making money and housing prices and stock prices, everything's going up. And so, you know, people's minds get detached uh, from the economy and, and they just think that everything's great and nothing could ever go wrong. Yeah. And, uh, and so we've been through that boom phase and it was all led by an unprecedented low interest rate environment from the Fed. And then, of course, under cover of COVID, the Fed unleashed an even more bizarro um, flood of money and credit. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they were supposed to be in a tightening phase when COVID hit. And when COVID hit, they said, all bets are off. Uh, we're going to go right back to printing money, right. uh, pumping up the money supply as much as we can. And, uh, you know, if you go back and look at any chart of stocks or commodity prices or whatever, anything you want, and uh, they all turned down right there in, uh, in March of 2020, and then everything explodes mm -hmm. uh, upwards, catching the Fed, the wave, the monetary wave from the Federal Reserve. Right. All right. Now, bear with me here because I'm just a dummy and I can just kind of think in um, historical analogies here from the relatively recent past, though, and just try to make the comparisons. I don't understand all these curves and stuff, but, um, you know, in the 1990s, we had, or at the very end of the 1990s, we had the dot com crash and the NASDAQ and the stock market, too. But um, as Ron Paul warned, Oh, they're still inflating the housing bubble. And so there was a bit of a crash. But uh, and in fact, then September 11th came and hit the financial district in Manhattan. And then Bush and Greenspan put the pedal to the metal and lowered interest rates way, way, way down. And that helped, uh, you know, as you were talking about there, helped abet the whole terror war and expanding the word of bonus wars like Iraq War II and whatever else they wanted um, during that period. But that ended up coming due, I think you know, karmically and and uh, and justly while Bush was still in the chair, right? He just had a couple of months left, but he wasn't able to blame it all on the next guy. Uh, did still, you know, the crash came on his watch. Now, then you had this huge bubble ever since then, 
and and all you Austrians are screaming about all the quantitative easing and the amount of it, of monetary inflation and everything they were doing to try to correct from the last crash that was the result of their last bubble there in 08. And then, but that bubble, my understanding, really sustained itself that, you know, whatever, some real prosperity and, and much artificial prosperity, that lasted through Obama and through all of Trump. And that was what Trump was terrified of the most, was that they were going to start raising interest rates too high and the crash was going to come before he got a chance to get reelected. So this was the Trump economy. He called it a bubble under Obama, but once it was his, he was like, look how great my economy is. And he was, and but the point being that we were due for a crash because it was, in in large part, a big fake bubble. But then what happened was two things. The lockdowns were sort of like Paul Volcker coming and crushing the economy with high interest rates. In other words, it was forcing a Great Depression, forcing businesses to stop taking loans and multiplying the money supply uh, and, and doing business and all of those things. But then, so it was almost like 08 again, only it was government force. They forced the crash of 20. But then as you're saying, then they made up for that by printing so much money. Do I understand you right? That it just makes 09 and 10 absolutely pale in comparison. So that now we have a much shortened boom bust cycle. We had this massive headlock of a crazy forced great depression from the lockdowns combined with this huge injection of monetary inflation to make it seem okay certainly protected the big guys for a while but now the pain is already coming due from that now we're already at the crash phase although not yet in real estate if i understand right but the stock market and obviously crypto and um i think used cars and a lot of the bubble markets right now are way on the downswing right so do i understand that right and then can you explain is it's just because they started raising interest rates a little bit at the federal funds rate and everybody got spooked. And so it's just the same boom bust cycle again, only now on this incredibly shortened kind of two year cycle. Is that right? That's basically correct. Um, you know, there's a lot of things going on. It's hard to disentangle them all. But basically, um, you know, in 2019, I was at least expecting, you know, a recessionary environment to emerge. Um, and it was starting, but when, you know, when COVID came along, all bets were off and any excuse related to COVID would be, you know, great to explain away any economic bad news. So, you know, it was a period of, of economic bad news of a, a real stranglehold on the economy and in addition to what the Fed was doing, uh, of course, the Treasury and the government uh, were basically giving away unprecedented amounts of, of money in, in, in terms of various subsidies and government checks, extended unemployment benefits, um, you know, loans and grants to businesses. Uh, you know, so the, the the money was still flowing, even though they were locking down uh, the economy and keeping and really keeping the productive people from their jobs uh, is essentially what they were doing. And, uh, and and so, you know, the the tightening cycle that should have begun 
in 2019 or earlier uh, has only just started. And basically, the Fed and its officials have been talking about the fact that they are going to fight inflation. And every day there's a new Fed government governor um, talking about, you know, why they think price inflation is job number one. Uh, but they're very late um, in the process. They had this delay, uh, and it, it's very much a, a delayed process, and they haven't really done much in terms of policy. They've increased interest rates just once off historically very low levels, and they've only just initiated their program of selling back um, mortgages uh, into the market, mortgages that they bought uh, during the crisis to help facilitate the housing bubble by keeping mortgage rates even below 3%. And so, you know, they, they, they really haven't, they've been talking, but they haven't been acting. And yet the market uh, is still uh, showing signs of tremendous pain. Stock markets, you know, if you're in, if you were invested in uh, streaming services or technology um, or Bitcoin, you know, all of our investments in those areas are hurting big time, down by fifty percent uh, or more. And the Fed hasn't really even started the tightening. And of course, they're um, very cautious because we're in the political season and they don't want to get involved in politics. At least that's what they say. And, uh, and so all of the, the policy changes that they've been talking about haven't even occurred yet. And we've seen mortgage rates, of course, go up, jump up um, with inflation uh, you know, inflation is forcing the market higher. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, mortgage rates have gone from three to five something percent. And, you know, that's really increased the mortgage payment that new home own, new homeowners are going to have to pay. So, you know, Austrians have been saying, don't subsidize housing, don't subsidize mortgages, uh, because there's so many young people 18 to into your 30s uh, or or even even older who haven't been able to afford a, the idea of owning a home just because their entire lives homes have been too expensive uh, and so you know uh, but that the Fed hasn't listened um, and now the average home sale, in the United States, not just San Francisco and not just New York City, but the average is now $500,000. And, and of course, that's just ridiculous. Um, and it's all mostly due. I mean, people are building better houses now, but uh, and more technologically savvy houses, but it's not enough to to increase the, the house. Oh, no. Hey, listen, I can tell you, I'm living in Austin, Texas right now. It's my hometown. I'm from here. And $300,000 houses are $600,000 right now. And that's 
you know, over the space of just the last two years. And a lot of that has to do with a massive increase of demand because of liberals fleeing their own policies uh, in California and things like that. And they're coming here and driving up massive demand, but they're buying houses. They were buying houses with essentially free money. And so, um, you know, they've essentially gentrified all the Austinites right out of town. It's all Californians live in the city limits now. <laughs> all the Austinites of all colors have been gentrified out of there. Um, and yeah, but if you drive, if, if you, if you drive, uh, and there are homeless people everywhere, man. Everywhere, and they're not all a bunch of losers and bums and addicts and scumbags. They just can't afford a place to live because they can't afford a place to live. Yeah, you've got your own little piece of California there, but you know, if you drive a hundred miles outside of Austin, they'll tell you the same thing about housing prices yeah. and land prices. Uh, you know, it's not like that; those people are immune to it. I mean, I, I go out to the back country of Alabama and the Panhandle. Uh, of Florida and people are saying the same thing, mm -hmm. you know, that pieces of property that people don't even know about are selling for 50 or a hundred percent more than they thought they were worth. So it's, it, it shows up, you know, in Austin and, and San Francisco and, and New York city and uh, Miami, Florida and uh, Phoenix, Arizona in statistics, but it, it really, infects the entire economy yeah hang on just one second hey y'all the audiobook of my book enough already time to end the war on terrorism is finally done yes of course read by me it's available at audible amazon apple books and soon on google play and whatever other options there are out there it's my history of america's war on terrorism from 1979 through today give it a listen and see if you agree it's time to just come home Enough already. Time to end the war on terrorism. The audiobook. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at expanddesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with expanddesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code SCOTT and save $500. That's expanddesigns.com. Hey guys, Scott Horton here for Listen and Think Libertarian Audiobooks. As you may know, the audiobook of my new book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally out. It's co-produced by our longtime friends at Listen and Think Libertarian Audiobooks. For many years now, Derek Sheriff over there at Listen and Think has offered lifetime subscriptions to anyone who donates $100 or more to The Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org donate or to the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org donate. And they've got a bunch of great titles, including Inside Syria by the late, great Reese Ehrlich. That's listenandthink.com. Well, I don't know, man. I'm just personally... I don't own a house, and I might be able to get one. I'm finally trying to get out from under the IRS here. Of course, they're the worst terrorists in America. Oh, everybody knows that. Um, but if I can finally get out from under them, then maybe I could buy a house. But I think I need a massive Great Depression to come and destroy this artificially high cost of housing first. But I'm afraid that it's 1999 and not 2008, and that despite the crashes and everything else, as you're saying, they're barely even raising interest rates at all. 
this is almost just a kind of a slight correction based on a little bit of panic, but they're still expanding the money supply like crazy, I guess, if I understand you right. And and you think yes. that no matter the skyscrapers, they're going to keep building at least for another little while, huh? Yeah, I mean, the, the housing bubble's not technically over. Um, now that the reports recently have not been great or positive, but it takes a while for for even for people to recognize a bubble and then to even admit the possibility of a, of a crash. Uh, there was a Federal Reserve official on Bloomberg uh, just a couple of days ago, and the announcer said something about, "Couldn't you do something do something to bring housing prices down?" And of course, <laughs> that's the last thing they want to do. Right. And the guy jumped in and said, oh, no, the Federal Reserve never wants to see housing prices go down. But they will come down. Uh, and, you know, the article that I just wrote about the latest housing bubble, someone reminded me that my article about the first housing bubble was almost two years before anybody admitted that there was a bubble and a crash. It was and about three years before years. the crash came, right? It was Robert Blumen and yourself. That was an early 05 at Mises, right? Yeah. Or, well, my, mine was mid-2004. Oh, okay. And uh, Robert had been writing about similar things. And Chris Meyer on our website, you know, related to that. Um, but Peter Schiff hadn't even, you know, been invited to CNBC yet. And, um, you know, and Bernanke said, no, there's no such thing as a housing bubble. Uh, so it was almost two years before hey, look, everybody, everybody realized what was going on. I mean, Mark, I was just driving a cab parroting Ron Paul, but I was telling everybody it was a housing bubble in 2000 and 2001 when the dot-com bubble crashed. I remember I had some real estate ladies in my cab and they were like, ha ha, we said always all along, uh, forget the dot-com stuff. That's all a scam. Uh, Warren Buffett says the real money is in real estate. And then I says to them, yeah, but that's all a bubble too. Don't you listen to Ron Paul, the congressman from the Gulf Coast there, man? It's all a big fake thing. And then, but the point is that the crash didn't come for another eight years. So there was no point in me being right then. I should have been buying property. That was at the bottom of the bubble, relatively speaking, you know? Yes. And that and that's that fact right there was key to realizing the first housing bubble because in that recession that followed the tech stock bubble crash in 2000-2001, real estate prices did not go down. And so that was a telling signal that the next bubble would be housing related because there was no correction um, from that housing bubble that had started in the late 90s. It was clear that it had already started, but it never broke down. There was never any wiggle in the statistical line, and um, it just continued to go up and up and up. And it was fed by other government policies, Community Reinvestment Act and loan regulations and so on and so forth. But, um, yeah, I mean, that was that was a... a a very unusual economic sign that real estate did not go down uh, during that phase. And frankly, you know, in, if this phase, if the inflation gets any worse, uh, 
you know, housing prices can be maintained with price inflation if people think that it's a store of value. And also, there are many, many more people who got burned last time with variable interest rate mortgages so that now most people have fixed rate mortgages. So a couple of the variables in the housing bubble equation are different this time. Yeah. In other words, and seem like they're going to prolong it and keep the comeuppance from coming sooner, which is just going to make it worse when it does come, I guess. Correct. Yeah, just too bad. It's too late for... I mean, I guess what I was counting on was there'd be a giant uh, Great Depression in housing coming and would at least bring the prices down by a good double-digit percentage or, you know, something significant. And then it would be like 09, and they would lower the interest rate again and start all over again. And that's when I would buy a house is when they put the interest rate back down to nothing again. But I guess you're telling me that's not happening. No, I think that that's a good possibility that it may be several years away. I see. Yeah. Um, Well, you know, I know a guy who, um, and, you know, I think Austin is maybe different than some places, uh, as I was saying, that there's so much, uh, you know, new demand here. But I know a guy who owned property who, when the crash came in 08, the value of his house went down by, I think he said, 10%. And that meant he got a pretty good cut on his property taxes for a couple of years. And then the price went right back up again. And then so, you know, he didn't lose anything. He only would have lost anything if he'd sold his house. But otherwise, it was fine. Not that big of a of a deal there, you know. Um, I guess you just got to time those kinds of things right if you can. <laughs> By well, the way, and you know, oh, and, go ahead. and housing housing is a personal decision, you know. So when I wrote that article in two thousand four, I must have talked to, you know, a hundred or several hundred people about, you know, they wanted to know what they should do about buying a house or finding a place to live, and it's a hard question to answer because, you know, you don't know where you are in the process or how far it's going to go up or down. And uh, so if you're planning on, you know, living someplace for the next 20 years and you think, um, you know, it's going to continue to inflate, um, you know, it may not be terrible. You know, if you don't lose your job, you know, there's a lot of ifs. Um, but if, if it's the right, if, you know, you might muddle through, if it's the wrong, if you may end up bankrupt. So that's why we hate the federal reserve. It's why we hate paper money. Um, it's not just war that we're concerned about. We're concerned about the battle of life day to day for every single person out there. Yeah. Well, listen, I think one of the major problems um, as I think I said at the beginning, was people are moving further and further to the socialist left, and for that matter, further and further to the more populist and nationalist right, and a lot of times blaming libertarianism for, you know, somehow being in control of policy all this time. This emphasis <laughs> on market capitalism that's gotten us screwed uh, and, and ruined everything so badly. Uh, as you remember, after W. Bush and everything went wrong. They pretended that Ron Paul had been in power all along. Mr. Laissez-faire, not Mr. You know, Ted Kennedy's partner, the center-left rhino, but that, that had been a libertarian administration somehow. And every time this happens, people get more and more radicalized against just the idea of 
you know, I don't know, because people define capitalism very different, right? Capitalism to a leftist emphasis on the ism. In other words, the richest people control the state. Well, that's different than what we mean when we say it, which is private property and voluntary exchange between people and this and that. You know what I mean? So, so people uh, misunderstand each other a lot. But what we have is both of those things. And the first part where the capitalists control the state they don't do a very good job. Our society is falling apart right now, mostly due to their corruption, right? Due to the corruption and the conflict of interest in the way Wall Street is run and our military industries. That's what's brought us to this, Mark. There's no question about that. You know, Austrians, Austrian economists, we love markets. We love market money. Uh, we love competition. We love property rights, uh, but never in that description of our market and what we think are the keys to civilization is state-sponsored entities or public-private partnerships or munitions manufacturers for the state uh, or any of those other hybrid-type situations where the power of the government is sewed together with competitive profit-seeking uh, capitalists, basically. The, the same thing that Marx described, you know, so in a sense, Austrians are a little bit Marxist in the sense that we also agree that the political process and the elites uh, in the military, uh, they can all get together and do some really, really rotten, some of the most dangerous things in, uh, in modern times. The slave companies, uh, the British and French slave companies were essentially public-private partnerships, uh, you know, with both commercial aspects and military aspects. So, we definitely want to make a strong, strict uh, dividing line between those two things. And, you know, the progressives and the statists, um, they're falling head over heels of the, with themselves about, you know, extending power and extending influence and, and helping um, us solve our problems when really... The only thing, you know, and history proves this, the only thing uh, that humans need is for the state and the powerful and the organized crime elements of government to disappear. And, uh, you know, the more we get that, the more we're going to have human uh, progress and flourishing. All right. Now, here's the controversial one about trade. There's a narrative, must be something to it, that a willingness to have essentially a no tariffs or very little tariffs on a country like China, which is a desperately poor and, and uh, a country with a huge population there, that there's this race to the bottom in labor where, and they still have tariffs on us. So even the stuff we're manufacturing here, we can't sell it all there. They can sell all their stuff here. And as Ross Pro said, it means this, there's this giant sucking sound of American middle-class jobs going to places like Mexico and um, 
China, and this is something that Trump ran on and that Bernie ran on, was we want to end free trade because free trade hurts working people. And what we need is protectionism to protect them. Hell of a lot of people believe that anyway. What do you think? Well, you know, even our fellow economists, mainstream economists, agree that free trade is obviously something that is one of the most valuable aspects of the increase in human standards of living over the last 250 years. So there's no really no question that free trade is the policy to use. The only question is, what does free trade really mean? And for most of our fellow economists, they don't have any problem with trade agreements and uh, trading free trade zones, trading blocks, um, you know, all sorts of international meddling, essentially, on the part of states, usually with a foreign policy aspect attached. Like right now, Biden is desperately seeking to unite South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, the Philippines, Australia, etc., into a more cohesive trading block against China. Um, and so, you know, that really rings to me uh, more concerned with the foreign and military thing than it does with trade. And, you know, if we go back to the beginning uh, with Ludwig von Mises, um, you know, and other classical economists, um, of the 19th century, they would argue against these trading blocks and they would argue against them vociferously. Um, and, but of course, those kind of block nation block behavior is what started, um, was the fuel to the fire of World War I, which turned the 20th century or helped start the 20th century onto a century of warfare. And so, you know, because these trading blocks, even if they're free trade trading blocks, and even if they're not initially for purposes of foreign policy and war, they get turned into that. They will eventually get turned into that right now Biden and, and other warmongers are out there trying to turn the G7 and the G20. Let's kick out Russia. Let's, you know, stop trade with Russia or whatever it happens to be. But they're taking that organization, which meant, which was at least said to be for freer trade and more trade and, uh, you know, protection of property rights and all these good things is how they sold it. But now they're using it as a foreign policy weapon in a war. And so that's why you have to be very careful in Austrian free trade policy and trade policy in general is that a nation should go down a path uh, of free trade, of unilateral free trade, that it sets its laws not with respect to other countries, but with respect to all countries. And it doesn't matter if it's a 
if it's a Mexican car or a Canadian car or uh, Canadian lumber or Mexican lumber or Chinese lumber or whatever it happens to be, it crosses the border in an anonymous and unbiased fashion. It doesn't get taxed. It doesn't get counted. It doesn't get inspected. None of that. Okay. So that's real free trade. It doesn't, it doesn't take a bureaucracy to manage free trade. It's free. It's you eliminate government from it on, on all sides and it, therefore can't be used uh, for purposes of foreign policy or military policy. And and it maximizes uh, the pace of human progress, at least in economics. Yeah. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, they've got great deals on weed at thehempspot.com. The Hemp Spot specializes in Delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol instead of Delta-9 so they can send it straight to you anywhere in America. Recently, a friend moved and didn't have a guy in his new town. But then he heard about thehempspot.com on my show and was saved, figuratively and literally. Because if you use the promo code SCOTT, you get 15% off every order and free shipping on any order over $100. Legal jams, bud, gummies, and the rest in your state. Thehempspot.com. Spell V-T-H-C. You guys, my friend Mike Swanson has written such a great revisionist take on the early history of the post-World War II national security state and military-industrial complex in the Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy years. It's called The War State. I have to say, it's the most convincing case I've read that Kennedy had truly decided to end the Cold War before he was killed. In any case, I know you'll love it. The War State by Mike Swanson. Some of y'all have a problem. You've got chickens, but you don't want to stand around throwing food at them all day because of all the important stuff you have to do. Well, the solution to that is to get the Free Range Feeder from FreeRangeFeeder.com. The Free Range Feeder has been developed to satisfy the needs of the poultry, chicken hobbyist, and the homesteader. The convertible design allows for four different mounting methods. Go to FreeRangeFeeder.com Scott or use promo code Scott to get 15% off and get the free ebook. Subscribe to their newsletter to immediately receive your free copy of Getting Started with Backyard Chickens. That's freerangefeeder.com slash Scott. Well, I mean, I can see why people would say if they lose a middle-class job, but then they save some on tube socks or lumber or whatever, that maybe there's not an exact balance there. But it sure makes more sense than letting government try to centrally plan what those prices should be and how much tariffs should be and what's the proper number of shoes or boards to import rather than manufactured domestically or anything like that. And I guess the reality is before the free trade regimes of the 90s, it was a very protectionist economy. A lot of that Rust Belt was built up on, you know, made out of factories that were built by the government during World War II or something like that. And then were, you know, heavily invested in um, by, you know, government-connected industries. Of course, financed with inflationary money all along, where you don't know where that money would have gone in a free market, right? And so it's kind of distortions all around. Yeah, and look at, and, and, and that's a great point. Look at what's going on in, you know, with tariffs right now. Uh, Trump put tariffs on China and, you know, some other things. 
and uh, he, he canceled the Pacific uh, Treaty. Um, and now Biden said, well, we want to get rid of tariffs. And then they said, well, no, now we don't want to get rid of tariffs. And uh, but now he's got inflation and his advisors say, well, if you can cut tariffs, you'll reduce the consumer price index by one percent. Um, but then he doesn't want to do that because he wants to win the state of Pennsylvania um, and maybe Ohio. And they like the tariffs, um, you know, and, uh, and and so they're getting caught up in their own um, web of deceit, really, uh, about, you know, how they feel about China and how they feel about Asian trade and how they feel about the steel industry. Um, and then, of course, you know, the Austrians and mainstream economists have shown that, you know, if we put uh, tariffs on steel and lumber uh, coming into the country, well, you know, we protect, you know, our domestic uh, suppliers, but guess what? Cars uh, and houses become a lot more expensive uh, because the steel that our car companies and home builders, uh, the wood our home builders have to buy is now higher priced. Uh, and so consumers actually are feeling the, you know, the cost of all of that. And, uh, and it just, well, it, it underlines the fact that uh, tariffs are attacks on the American consumer, and free trade is what opens up discounts for consumers on a whole host, host of things, um, some of which are not on the consumer shelf right now. We saw what would happen with the baby formula and the fact that we weren't allowed to import um infant formula from countries that had a lo lower infant mortality rate than us. Um, and so babies have to go hungry because of stupid things that the government does and stupid re trade restrictions that they do um, that e have existed for a long time. Uh, and we haven't known yeah. about, you know, what, what they're, what they, the, the really the true cost uh, of the nonsense that goes on in Washington, D.C. Yeah. You know, Reason had a couple of really great pieces about the uh, infant formula stuff and the massive, I guess, when they renegotiated NAFTA, whatever it's called now, they increased the tariffs from uh, on uh, formula from Canada to prohibitively, uh, you know, high amounts. Then you have the FDA bans all the importing from Europe because they don't have the correct nutrition labels on the side of the thing or whatever it is, even though it's the same stuff that you'd sell wherever. And they could probably just negotiate and work that out. I don't know what their problem is there. And I can't remember that. I'm sorry, off the top of my head, but there were three or four more interventions that the government was doing to, you know, prevent competition here. And, uh, you know, oh, and then of course they shut down the factory and I don't know exactly what happened, but it looks like, that was an accident that the bacteria that had killed these babies was mistakenly connected to this factory when there was actually, it turns out no real reason to think so. And the government took the whole thing offline. And so anyway, go on and on. It's a mixed economy, Mark, and it's pretty messed up. You know? Yeah, it's messed up. And I, I, I hope everybody out there in your audience knows enough to realize that they should be pointing, um, you know, their finger at the Fed 
and the federal government. It's not your consumer, you know, uh, information service at a company, or it's not your help desk at a company. It's not the cashier's fault um, that labor markets are so screwed up. It's not, you know, our supply chain people that mess this up. It's the government that messed this up in a massive way that's so must messed up that, you know, it's hard to keep track of all the missing pieces. We've known about those uh, regulations on baby formula for a long time, but of course, they would never do anything about it. But the idea that the FDA can walk in and shut down 40% of the infant formula uh, marketplace on the supply side without any plan B yeah. um, just goes to show you where their thought processes are going. And the only things that are of any concern to most of these people in Washington are, you know, um, fake problems like global warming or even if it's not fake, um, even if it is true. Um, and I, I believe there's something to that. Um, their solutions um, are, at the very least, not well thought out. Um, and most of the ones that I actually know of and have done any kind of research on um, are are largely backfiring on their own mission and um, their own analysis. Yeah. Um, and, and so we, we need to get, you know, I would like to get rid of the government, but if we have to have a government, we have to have people with a better mindset, you know, the, between the government and the bureaucracy and the media right now, they have just basically a progressive mindset out just right out of the playbook of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels communist manifesto in the 10 point program that it lists out there and they just can't see anything else. At least the leaders of these groups have, that's their mindset. And frankly, they don't care um, who they hurt or how they hurt them. Yeah. Well, a lot of times they uh, take it as a measure of their valor of how much pain they're willing to inflict for the greater good and that kind of thing. That's how they know they're doing the right thing more than before uh thank you thank you for pointing that out to me i need to write that down yeah hey listen you know it's in that book and and all austrians should read secrets of the temple by william Grider, the washington post version of jekyll island basically and it's all about volker and how under volker it was murder how he forced a depression on the american people which he did it was the only way to defeat inflation which his predecessors had caused and now here he came in to lick inflation, but that did mean bankruptcies all across the land by people who weren't guilty of nothing, but who just got caught up in the monetary policy of their overlords might as well be a million miles away. And um, they kept statistics of how many bankruptcies, you know, personal and business, how many divorces, how much foster care, how much whatever statistics that you can measure, so uh, you know, church attendance or whatever, however you measure social crises, they measure it at the Fed. They count those beans, and then they would say, you know, 
good for you, Jenkins, that you're willing to hang tough on this policy for another little while longer. Now, I know that, you know, you and I look at that as worth your soda straw in a way that, um, you know, because it is, it's the Fed, it's the boom and the bust. What are you going to do? You can't just be mad about the bust. You got to be mad about the fake boom first, uh, or at least, um, but they really did have a point there that that was, you know, how they measured their valor was that we are willing to inflict this on the people because we know what's good for them. You know, same as anything yeah. else, I guess, you know? Yeah, that it, I can tell you one thing for sure is that inflation of the 70s was awful. Um, you know, just as bad as it is it is today. At some points worse and certainly the you know 80 81 82 were just extremely difficult and um extremely uh bad times. Uh, for Americans across the board. I mean, I don't think, um, you know, anybody really uh, escaped that that period of economic downturn. And, you know, it's just sure. now, um, you know, I haven't heard the word stagflation in decades. Now we're back. It's, only been, it's only been in the last few weeks that that term has been resurrected. They might as well go ahead and get it over with and just cause the depression now and then inflate another giant fake bubble starting in a few months. Yeah. And Why it, prolong really, it at this point, you know? Yeah, I mean, you, you have to solve the problem. Uh, the important thing in the vexing problem is it's hard to explain to people why the boom times when everything seems so good are really the problem. Yeah. That's really the start of all of the pain. Um, you know, those booms are going to turn to busts and all of the profits and stock prices and home ownership and stuff, it goes away and people suffer and people lose money and people make bad decisions. Um, so hopefully we'll get it right. Uh, I think there are more people right now who distrust their government than ever Hallelujah. in American history. And I think there's more people who are willing to uh, listen to arguments about gold, uh, especially the people who uh, have looked into cryptocurrencies um, and, and, and those types of things. And, you know, why did crypto? Why did Bitcoin emerge when it did? Why did it do what it did? Why is it produced in the way it is? Well, it's mimicking the gold standard. So we've got millions and millions and millions and millions of younger people who have been exposed to crypto, and they're probably the fertile ground for a sound monetary system going forward, one that doesn't create the boom-bust cycle um, yeah. the way the Fed can. Yeah, and everybody money. thinks it's Bitcoin that's so unstable, but no, it's because of the dollar that causes Bitcoin to do what it does. Um, but anyway, uh, we're almost out of time here. I wanted to give you a chance to uh, talk about Mises Summer coming up here, Mark. Well, the summer is the exciting uh, time at the Mises Institute. We just finished up our Austrian Research Scholars Conference, which was great. Some of the lectures are online at MIS, 
es.org. The summer research fellows are arriving right now from around the country uh, and around the world, too, for that matter. And we're very excited about uh, their research and their new careers uh, as academic or even not academic researchers. Um, and then, of course, we have the Rothbard Graduate Seminar, which is really key for people learning the nuts and bolts of Austrian economics. Uh, so we'll double our size of scholars at that point. And then we get ready for Mises University, uh, where we bring in college students from all around North America and, and elsewhere in the world as well. Um, so, and then, of course, in the fall, We'll be heading, I guess I'll be heading through Austin uh, to Phoenix for our 40th anniversary conference. So the Mises Institute is uh, in the process of celebrating our 40th year. And uh, nobody thought we'd last this long or that we would have this big of an audience or that there would be 20 other Mises Institutes around the world. I mean, and, you know, and it's not just that but well it's look at, mindset has changed i mean mark come on the mises institute is the most important libertarian institution in the world there's no question about that everybody knows that i think yes i think that way you think that way a lot of the people in the know think that way and uh and you know and i think everybody else um is there are some that hope that isn't the case uh because we are you know on the far end, a little more extreme than other Austrians, people say. But I think we also have a record of being right and a record of being uh, a builder of intellectual capital uh, in terms of hardcore research and library and uh, free books on the internet and conferences all over the world. Uh, changing minds. Europe is in good shape right now uh, with Austrians teaching in most countries. And, um, you know, things are much better here in the United States. Uh, but we have a very, very long ways to go. And the academy, of course, universities and colleges are heading in the other direction, uh, much more towards uh, Marxism and progressivism. Uh, economics, which is not only economically destructive, uh, but it's also discriminatory against minorities and poor countries and poor individuals. Uh, and despite whatever they say, uh, they have a very bad record of like Marxist countries killing their own people en masse. Uh, you know, and so it, once more people hear the real story, I think our uh, mutual progress is assured, uh, but we also have to remember that there's we've created a lot of enemies um, in the process, so we can't be too surprised when the IRS knocks at our door. Yeah, well, don't get me started on the stormtroopers of death. I gotta go, but thank you so much. You're the best of the best, Mark. Thank you, Scott. You're doing great work, um, holy work, and I wish you all the best. Great. All right, everybody, that is Mark Thornton. Uh, the Skyscraper Curse 
is his latest book, and he's written a bunch of articles like that, skyscrapers and business cycles and these kinds of things. And his latest piece at Mises is called The Fed's Latest Housing Bubble, and it's really thorough and informative. You guys will really get something out of it. Check that out at Mises.org. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.